Father, we recognize it is easy to say that with our lips. It's easy to sing that. And yet so often we, we don't live like that is so. So, Lord, we pray that you would change us. We pray that the truth that we've just saying that it would take root in our hearts and in our minds, that we would live like that is so each and every day. Lord, we pause now to again confess our need for you, how we need your grace, we need your wisdom, we need your spirit to move and to work in us and through us, that we would become the people that you desire us to be. Oh, how we thank you, how you have loved us, We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you continue your work in us and through us. And we pray that you would do that this day, that you would continue to receive the glory and the honor for what you accomplish in and through your people. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you are, please open your Bibles once again to Second Peter. And I am so thankful that in God's good providence that we're finishing this little letter, Second Peter, today on Pentecost Sunday, because this letter ends in such a forward-looking kind of way. What Peter discusses here in these final verses, they are fulfilled, they are carried out because of the power and the presence of God in his people. Because of the Spirit of God in the people of God, what we read here at the end of Second Peter is accomplished. It is, it is made done because God has made it to be done in and through his people because of his grace and his Spirit. Now before we jump into these final five verses, please note this on your outline. This might be helpful for you. As we go into this concluding section of Second Peter, uh, note it down. These final five verses helpfully and beautifully summarize summarize this entire letter. So if this is your first day here at Harbor Shores and you're like, oh man, I've missed out on the entire study of Second Peter. Woe is me. Not so fast because you're going to get the whole letter in summary form in these last five verses, okay? You can easily trace all the themes and ideas and principles that that Peter talks about here. You can trace them easily throughout the rest of this entire letter. What is Second Peter all about? Will these final verses serve as a wonderful and faithful summary? In fact, one commentary that I was reading this week about these verses, basically the commentator said, well, There's nothing new here, so go back and read everything I wrote earlier about all these different themes, and then you'll get the gist. I was like, I'm not doing that. I already read that, and so I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. But, but he's right. He's right in the thought that all of the themes and ideas have already been unpacked, and Peter now just reiterates them all to drive them home, and we should love that. We should love that. Why? Because Peter already told us we are a forgetful people. Yes, we are. You are forgetful. I am forgetful. And so Peter ends with one last reminder. What's so important, Peter? What's the big deal? Let me tell you, it's right here in these final five verses. Now, what we see here in these five verses are really four commands, four beneficial, 
helpful commands along with one major rabbit trail. And if you don't like that term rabbit trail, let me say it like this. We have four commands with one essential parenthetical statement related to the nature of Scripture and the New Testament in specific. Okay, so that's what we see here. We get the four commands with this glorious, essential rabbit trail or parenthetical statement. So just keep that in mind. We'll get to it when we get to verse 15. But for the moment... Go back to verse 14. Okay, here we are, 14. Peter, bringing it home, here's what he writes. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is so good. Note it on your outline. The first command is this. Be diligent. Be diligent in your expectant pursuit of Christ-like purity. So, notice the confidence with which Peter begins his concluding remarks. He says, here, with such God-centered confidence, therefore, therefore, which of course connects us back to what Peter has just written, to what Peter has just discussed concerning the soon return of Jesus Christ. And Peter, once again, he calls his readers what? He calls them beloved. Beloved, reminding them that they are beloved of God, that they are chosen by God, that they are loved by Him, and that they are loved by Peter. Peter loves his readers. He is writing for their benefit, for their well-being. Peter loves them. He wants them to again be reminded of how they are so dearly loved by God and by Peter. And then Peter adds this clarifying statement before he gets to his first command. Peter writes, since you are waiting for these. Since you are waiting for these. And if you're like me and you have a bad memory, you're like, wait, what was I waiting for again? What, what are the these that I am waiting for? These what? What does Peter have in mind? Well, it's not complicated. Go back one verse. Go back one verse to verse 13. Uh, Brother Matt preached on this last week, and it was so good. And I'm not going to try to re-preach his message, but if you didn't hear that last week, you need to go back and you need to listen to what Matt preached last week. But just to remind you, in verse 13, Peter writes, But according to his promise, we are waiting for, here it is, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Since you are waiting for these, since you are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, since you are waiting in expectant hope of what He is going to do when He returns, since you are looking forward to the end of all things, to a new heavens and a new earth. And now, and now before we move on to the command, let me just ask you the question. Matt asked it last week. I'll ask it again. Are you? Are you waiting for these things? Are you longing for these things? Are you hoping for these things? And the reason why I ask this is because it is so easy to forget. It is so easy for us to let our hope wander. Listen, when the choice is heaven or hell, of course you want heaven. When the choice is heaven or earth, eh, now I'm not so sure. Heaven or hell, you bet I want heaven. Heaven or earth, I don't know. I kind of like my life. Pretty comfortable. I like the food I eat. I like the shows I watch. I like my vacation plans. 
What do I need with a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? See, Peter is helping us to see something. He's helping us to see uh, that that kind of attitude that says, what do I need with a new heavens and a new earth? It is painfully ignorant. Painfully ignorant. This, this way of thinking fails to see life as it really is. That kind of attitude fails to see the world as it really is. That way of thinking that says, what do I need with the new heavens and, and, and a new earth? That way of thinking fails to see the devastation of sin, the need of sinners, the grace of Christ, the urgency of the gospel, and the glory of what is yet to be revealed when Jesus comes again. And so the point is, says Peter, lift your eyes to see what is real. Lift your eyes to see what is actually happening around you. Lift your eyes to know the truth of what is to come. And live how? Live in what kind of way? Verse 14 again. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent, yes, to pursue holiness. Be diligent, yes, to run after godliness. To grow more like Christ, who is himself without blemish or or spot. Jonathan Edwards, the well-known theologian and preacher who lived in the early, mid-1700s, he famously wrote a series of resolutions. And these were resolutions that he wanted to govern and to guide his life and to inform his thinking as he thought about how he should use the time that God had entrusted to him. And so many of his resolutions, they capture this thought of expectancy and holiness and living so as to be be prepared to meet the Lord. Let me share just a few of his resolutions with you. Resolution number seven. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 17. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 19, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Number 50, resolved I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Number 55, resolved to endeavor to do my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. Because the truth is, Jesus will return. He will return. You will be found by him. As Peter writes, you will be found by him. Don't you like the way that, or maybe you don't, like the way that Peter phrases that. So the question I want to ask you this morning question that Peter suggests an answer to is this, how do you want Jesus to find you on that day? How do you want Jesus to find you? Or I'll ask the question some different ways. With what kind of inner person, in what 
condition of your inner person do you want Jesus to find you on that day? With your mind set on what? With your heart loving what? With your will pursuing what goal? With your affections adoring what? How do you want Jesus to find you when he returns? Peter suggests that there is only one good way to be found by Christ on that day. And it is, as he says, without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish. That's, he says, that's the right answer. How do you want Jesus to find you? Strive so that he will find you without spot or blemish. I love commentator Simon J. Kistemacher. He explains it well when he writes these words. He says, the believer ought to follow the example of Jesus, who himself is without blemish or defect. See, Peter is playing off of what he wrote in, in 1 Peter 1.19, that Jesus is without spot or blemish. You be without spot or blemish. You be like Christ. You follow after him. And then Kistemacher writes, Peter's choice of words is deliberate. For he intimates that the readers are the exact opposite of the false teachers. He portrays these teachers as blots and blemishes. That's from chapter 2, verse 13. And then he writes, by contrast, Christians should pray Paul's prayer that they may be blameless and holy in God's presence when Jesus returns. So, the point is, and it's obvious, don't tolerate sin in your life. Believer, don't tolerate knowingly the presence of sin in your life. Don't buy the lie that a little sin, it's fine. It's fine. A little dishonesty, a little immorality, a little gossip and slander, a little bit of greed, it's okay. No, it's not, says Peter. It's not okay. We are called to something so much higher and something so much better. We are called here to actually grow in the character and likeness of Jesus. We are called to take on Jesus' thinking and his attitude towards sin. We are called to walk in Christ's love, to desire what he knows is good and right in the Father's sight. And so when Jesus returns, we want to be found in him without spot or blemish. And then Peter adds these three words, and at peace. And at peace. What does that mean? Peace. Peace, well, in context, in light of everything that Peter has been writing in this letter we know as Second Peter, at peace means, first and foremost, rejoicing in the peace that we now have with God because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be at peace. Be rejoicing in the peace that you now have in Christ because of His work on your behalf for you. If you are in Christ, you are at peace with God. So live like it. Think like it. Live in such a way as to rejoice in the happiness of the peace that you have with God because of Christ. It also means to be at peace 
resting in the wisdom and the sovereignty and the timing, the timing of God's plan. Be at peace in God's sovereignty, knowing that God is both good and faithful. History has not slipped out of his fingers. History has not gotten away from his grasp. We don't want Christ to find us anxious and doubting and consumed with worry. We don't want Christ to find us acting like we are neglected orphans when in fact we are sons and daughters of the King. At peace, knowing and believing that God is really and truly working all things together for his glory and for our good. So yes, let us be at peace in Christ today. Next, look at what Peter writes next in verses 15 and 16. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Please note this on your outline number two. Be confident. Be confident in the wisdom and the timing of God's plan. Here, Peter, he again returns to this theme of patience. And we've seen this theme throughout Second Peter. He returns to this idea that God is patient. He is patient for the purpose of salvation. Uh, this is what he means when he says that, uh, that we are to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God is patient. He is not slow. He is giving yet more time for the gospel to be proclaimed. God is giving more time for sinners to hear and to repent and to respond in faith to the good news of the gospel. And as Peter explains, this is a theme, this is an idea that not only Peter talks about and Peter writes about, but the Apostle Paul. Paul talks about this. Paul writes about this as well. You say, well, where exactly? Let me give you one example. One uh, example of this could be in Romans 2.4, where Paul writes, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So Peter acknowledges God is patient. Paul acknowledges God is good. God is patient. God is kind. God is long-suffering. And this is meant to lead you to repentance. This is, this is made to draw you that you would see the kindness and the goodness of God and you would respond in faith and in joy in, over what God has done for you. And we also see that this mention of Paul in this letter it begins the glorious rabbit trail that we talked about earlier because all of a sudden, Peter feels compelled to talk about Paul. Peter feels compelled to talk about Paul's ministry and Paul's letters and how we should think about Paul. And what does Peter have to say about Paul? How does Peter refer to Paul? And just to remind you, this is the same Paul that publicly confronted and rebuked Peter. This is the same Paul who at Antioch, when Peter was playing the hypocrite, that 
Paul had the nerve to publicly challenge and confront Peter. And then he wrote about it in Scripture. He wrote about it in Galatians chapter 2 so that all believers of all time would know what happened at Antioch when Peter played the hypocrite. That, that's Paul. I bet Peter's going to get his revenge now. Uh, Peter's like, oh, you want to talk about me in Scripture? I'm going to talk about you in Scripture. So that believer's going to read about it for all time. And so this is Peter's opportunity. What does Peter have to say about Paul? Well, look at the end of verse 15. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, According to the wisdom given him. So, far from being angry with Paul, Peter is so thankful for Paul. Peter says, this, this is our beloved brother Paul. We lo- Remember Paul? We love Paul. We love Paul. The same Paul that got in my face when I needed it. We love Paul. Paul is a true and faithful brother to Peter, we, we love Paul. And listen, we too, you should love the people who are willing to challenge you. You should love the people who are willing to talk to you about your need to repent and to continue to follow Christ. We should love those kinds of people. And so then what follows in verse 16, again, this might seem like a rabbit trail, but it is one of the most important clarifying statements in the Bible about the Bible. It's one of the most important clarifying statements that help us to understand how the New Testament writers thought about the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, of the New Testament. So look again at verse 16, and we're going to just walk slowly. I mean, we're going to do it quickly, but we're going to walk slowly through verse 16. Okay, here Peter explains that Paul writes with wisdom. Here it is, quote, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, stop there for just a moment. Did you notice that the word letters is in the plural? Okay, Peter is not thinking about just one of Paul's letters. No, Peter has in mind, if you will, a growing collection of letters. A growing collection of letters written by Paul to which we should give attention to which we should hear and believe and and receive. And then Peter goes on. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And did you hear that? Hard to understand, not impossible to understand. There's a difference. Hard to understand. And then he goes on to say, which the ignorant and unstable twist. To their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Okay, noted on your outline, here's the essential rabbit trail. Though some may try to twist and distort it, you can trust. You can trust and love and believe the totality of God's word in both Old and New Testaments. And yes, some of it is hard to understand. And that was Great, what Pastor Stephen said earlier, because Peter, touche, my friend, touche. You know, some of the things that you write, we thought were hard to understand. So there you go. But brothers and sisters, we can understand that. If you have ever thought, hey, 
this verse is challenging. This is a little hard to understand. You're in good company. Peter thought that some of Paul's letters were at times difficult to understand. Remember back when we were studying through 1 Corinthians? Does anyone else remember 1 Corinthians? We went through 1 Corinthians as a church family. I thought that. Stephen thought that. Matt thought that. Rob thought, even Rob thought that. Uh, Parts of 1 Corinthians, we were like, man, this is hard to understand. I tell you, I read Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11. And I'm like, some of this is Hard to understand. So, thanks God. Thanks for making your words so hard to understand. Why did God do that? Why would God, in His infinite wisdom and goodness and glory and grace, why would He inspire some parts of it to be, quote, hard to understand? Well, brothers and sisters, this reminds us of something very important. This reminds us We are called to be students of God's Word, not casual observers. Okay? We are called, God continually throughout the Psalms, throughout so much of the Old Testament and New Testament, calls us to look intently into His law, to look intently into His Word, to meditate on it, to think deeply upon it. We are called to examine and to consider God's Word together so that together we would know and we would love and we would receive what it is that God has for us, even in the challenging parts, even in the hard parts. The point is this book demands and deserves your work, your effort, your attention, your diligence in reading it and in studying it. This is a book that refreshes us, it does, and it calls for our effort. It calls for our work. It calls out for our attention. Why? So that we would truly see and know who God is how good He is, how glorious He is, how sovereign He is, how wise He is, how majestic He is. This is a, God who sh- this, this is a book who shows us God for who He really is. So if it takes a little effort, so be it. So be it. So be it. From Genesis to Revelation, this book is equally inspired, equally authoritative, equally sufficient for us to base our lives upon. This is Peter's point, and it is clear when he compares Paul's letters to, quote, the other scriptures. Okay? That's what Peter does. He compares Paul's letters to and with the other scriptures. Now, I love how uh, Paul Gardner in his commentary explains this this way. He writes, What is fascinating about Peter's comments here is that he links Paul's writings to scriptures. Now, notice this. He says the word other is deeply significant. The Greek word translated as scriptures here is only used in the New Testament to describe the authoritative teaching of God in the Old Testament. Now, Peter links those foundational and spirit-inspired writings uh, with the work of the Apostle Paul. 
This is one of the very earliest examples we have of writings that we know in the New Testament being regarded as fully inspired of the Holy Spirit and counted as being as authoritative as the Old Testament. And listen, (laughs) Peter's not stupid. Peter knows exactly what he is saying here. Peter knows exactly what he is communicating here to his readers. This, this idea, this idea, if, if, if you have a good memory and you can remember back to chapter 1, uh, this idea of authority and scripture and how it is inspired by God and given by God, this has been heavy on the heart and the mind of Peter from the very first chapter. Remember how chapter 1 ends with these words, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's point is, and track with me here because this is going to take a turn in just a moment. The turn is coming. Peter's point is this. You can trust, bless you, you can trust what the Holy Spirit inspires. You can. You can trust what the Holy Spirit inspires. You can trust the wisdom given to Paul. You can trust the wisdom given to Peter and to every other inspired author. You can look at God's word as sure, as faithful, as accurate, as authoritative. But, and this gets to Peter's next point here, What you cannot trust is everyone's handling of God's word. What you cannot trust, listen, is that everyone who claims to teach God's word actually does so. What you cannot trust is that everyone will seek to deal honestly and and rightly with what God has said. And listen, Peter makes this so clear. He's made it so clear throughout his letter and he makes it clear again here. He describes how there are those in verse 16 and he describes them as ignorant and unstable. Earlier, he called them false teachers. He talked a lot about them in in chapter 2. And these false teachers who are ultimately ignorant and unstable, he says that they will do their best to twist Scripture. They, They will do their best to twist Scripture. Now, will they ultimately be successful? No, because Peter says that they do this, what? To their own destruction. They, 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 they do this and it's going to end in their own death. It's going to end in their own destruction. But they try anyway. They are unstable. They are ignorant. And they try, to twist the, they try to twist the word of God. So while it is inspired, you cannot automatically and necessarily accept everyone's handling of the Spirit-inspired text. You must be discerning. You must be careful. And, and, and I love how Chuck Swindoll talks about this in, 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 in his commentary, how he describes the twisting that, that Peter talks about. He writes this. He says, the Greek word for distort here means to twist, wrench, or torture. In fact, the noun form of this same word is used for the torture device known as the rack. 
on this cruel device. A person would be fastened, then twisted and turned, often dislocating limbs as his interrogator attempted to draw information out of him. Peter's analogy is apt. The false teachers, scripture in hand, would wrench and torture a text until it said what they wanted it to say. That's that's graphic, but it's so good. The point is, please don't torture the scripture. Please don't mangle it and wrench it apart and and, and try to force a meaning upon it that is not there. Don't try to force a meaning into it that the original author never intended. Uh, I mean, underlying all of this is is Peter's not-so-subtle word of application that we are to see what the text actually says in context and in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Love Scripture that way. Study it that way in context and in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Peter, believe it or not, Peter is in harmony with Moses. Because they were both inspired of the Holy Spirit. Moses is in harmony with the Apostle Paul. Both are inspired of the Holy Spirit. Paul is in harmony with David. And what uh, God inspired David to write, David is in harmony with Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know, but they are in harmony as well because they are inspired of the Holy Spirit. And so, how should we respond? How should we respond to those who seek to twist and distort and mangle the Word of God? Look again at verse 17. Verse 17, Peter writes, You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand. Okay, stop there for just a moment. So you know, he says, you know this beforehand. I've told you this. Knowing this beforehand, knowing about the presence of Scripture twisters, you know that they're there. You know that they're out there. Knowing this beforehand, what should we do? He writes, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Number three, please note it on your outline. His point is this. Be watchful. Be watchful against error and every subtle deception. This Greek word here, translated as take care, it is a military term. And it could perhaps better be translated as be on guard. That's what Peter writes here. Be on guard. Or keep your eyes Peeled, or don't fall asleep at your post, or don't let the enemy sneak up on you because you were watching the clouds drift by. Oh, that one kind of looks like a dinosaur. Oh, and then, and you are so oblivious. You are on guard. You are to be watchful. You are to be aware. I don't care what the clouds look like. You stay focused. That's, that's Peter's point. You be on guard. And listen, this concept, when, when, when he talks about being carried away with error, it's really the idea of wandering off. He's like, don't wander off. Stay where you're supposed to stay. Don't go wandering off. You have been given a secure, firm foundation in Christ and in His Word Why are you over there? 
How did you get over there? What you, get back to where you're supposed to be. That's the point. Peter's like, don't be like the little kid who wanders out of his yard into a busy street. Oh, because he hears an ice cream truck somewhere. Don't be that, don't be that bad driver. Who, who ignores the directions on your Waze app, who, or who ignores the directions of his wife, who is never lost. Don't be like, don't be like the one who ignores those directions oh, because you have a feeling. Oh, I, I know, I, I got a feeling this is the right way to go. No! Don't! Don't! You don't trust your feelings. You trust what you know to be sure, which is my wife's directions. You trust that. Don't be like, don't be like the foolish Boy Scout who trades his map and compass for a really nice walking stick. Now I have this really nice walking stick and I can walk. You don't know where you're going. You are lost now, but you have a nice walking stick. That is Peter's point. Don't lose your stability. Don't go wandering off like you are so, and I am so inclined to do. And listen, Peter writes this. And this is such an important command. Please hear me. If you don't, I mean, I want you to hear the other things I say, but I really want you to hear this. We need to understand this. uh, Because the world will gladly help you lose your stability. The world will gladly help you wander off. Do you not feel that every day? Do you not sense that every day? We constantly are met with the wisdom of the world that would gladly usher us away. Just come over here. Look at this. Have you considered this? Come, come with me. I mean, brothers and sisters, listen. The first public act of Satan in the Garden of Eden was what? To help Eve doubt and question what God had said. To doubt and to question the, re- the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the reliability of, of, of God. Did God really say? Did he really say that? You'll be okay. In fact, you'll be more than okay. Listen to me. You won't die. God's holding out on you from the really good stuff of life. You can't trust him, but I'm here. You could trust me. You could go with me. To that, Peter says, don't lose your stability. Brothers and sisters, I beg of you, don't lose your stability. When when the world tells you that you can reject creation order and you can make your own reality, don't lose your stability. Don't listen to the foolishness of, of this world. You cannot successfully reject the beauty and the order of, of God's creation. You cannot, on your own, apart from God and in rebellion against God, decide what is right and best for you. He made you. He knows you. He loves you. He knows what is right and what is best for you. Don't lose your stability. Don't lose your stability. When, 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 when the world tells you that sex is just 
flesh touching flesh. It's nothing more. It's not significant. It can be whatever you want it to be. It needs to be liberated. It needs to be set free from the bondage of marriage. Sex can be anything you desire it to be. God doesn't actually know what he's talking about. Don't lose your stability. Don't lose your stability when the world tells you that you need its approval for your life to matter. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? You need our approval. You need our support through whatever platform. You need our likes. You need our applause. You need our hearts. You need our shares. You, you, you need us to validate your life with value and worth and significance. Peter says, don't lose your stability. What are you doing? You have already been given all that you need for life and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We covered this back in chapter 1. And what I find so interesting is that this is the same point. I, I love this. I love this about Peter. I kind of I found it funny. You probably won't find it funny, but that's fine. I, this is, so Peter ends his first letter the same way. Peter, Peter can't get away from this. As he ends first, Peter, he's like, don't lose your stability. I mean, he says it a little bit differently. I'll show it to you in just a second. But as he ends second, Peter, he's like, guys, still don't lose your stability. Okay, what I wanted for you back in my first lesser uh, is what I want for you now in my second letter. Don't lose your stability. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Here's how he ends. He says, I've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this, meaning what's taught in First Peter, that this is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. Okay, so stand firm in this. Don't wander away from this. Stand firm in this. Don't shift away from the joy, the hope, the certainty of who you are in Christ today. Who are you in Christ? You are loved. You are chosen. You are accepted. You are set free. You are empowered by God's Spirit today. Don't wander from that. Don't move away from that. And don't lose the stability of what you know is to come in the future. Hold fast to what you know Jesus will do when He returns shortly. Stand firm in this. Don't lose your stability in this because God has called us, brothers and sisters, to something so much better. And this now brings us really to the last, and we're there, I, I promise, to the last verse in this letter. And Peter, I think, Peter really has saved the best for last. Peter does not want to leave us simply with this negative command of don't wander off, don't lose your stability. No, Peter saves the best command and the best benediction for the very end. Look again at verse 18, Peter writes, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Number four, note it down, be encouraged to grow. To grow in the grace, knowledge, and worship of Jesus. Verse 18 begins with a command, a command to grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And it ends, you notice it ends 
with the worship of Jesus. It ends with proclaiming the glory of Jesus, both now and forever to the day of eternity. And we should remember, if we think about Peter's life, as we think about the biography of of Peter, we should be reminded that Peter himself is a good example of this. Okay, Peter himself is a walking, living, breathing illustration of this truth to us because Peter, he knew a thing about wandering off. He knew a thing about losing his steadfastness in Christ. He denied that he even knew Jesus at one point. He ran away after he promised that he would be faithful and he would stay with Christ. And yet, Peter repented. And Peter grew. And the point is, you can too. We can too. He grew in his love for Christ, in his knowledge of Christ. He grew from a very rough Galilean fisherman to a godly fisher of men. He grew to become who God wanted him to be in Christ, a man who loved God and who greatly loved and blessed the church, the people of God. And so it is obvious, but I will say it anyway, just in case any of you are asleep. Here is the point. This command to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it applies to every Christian. Every single Christian. There is no age limit attached to this verse. There is no expiration date given here. There is no exemption clause, no escape hatch, no legitimate excuse that you could give to Peter that would invalidate your need for growth in godliness, your growth in Christ-likeness. And here is the really wonderful thing about the command that Peter gives. Please note it on your outline. When it comes to knowing Christ, When it comes to knowing Jesus and His grace, you will never reach the end. You will never reach the end. This is why Peter could write this verse this way with such an eternity-focused perspective, saying, to Him, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And then he says, Amen, which means, So let it be. Let it be so. Let it happen this way because this is true. So the glory and the worship of Jesus. Listen, this is the settled destination of this winding road that we call human history. This, in this final phrase of 2 Peter, this is where everything is moving. Where is life heading? Where is life going? After all of the false teachers have been exposed for what they are, after God has done His work in and through His people, what is the final destination of all things? To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is how it all ends. The point is this. Start worshiping today and never stop. Start worshiping today and never stop. You will never reach the end of the grace of Christ, of the glory of Christ. You'll never reach the end of His unfathomable love for you. You'll never see the end of 
of his goodness. You will explore it and adore it and marvel at it for all of eternity. This is why we sang that song earlier, how we stand amazed. We should stand amazed now. We will stand amazed then as his glory and goodness continues for all of eternity. So as you know, this morning we have the privilege to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm so thankful, again, in God's providence that we're doing that today on this Pentecost Sunday. We are celebrating and remembering, yes, the giving of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ that he would offer up himself. But brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded in that, that Jesus' purpose in living and dying and rising back to life and ascending back into heaven. He did this to purchase grace for us, to purchase all of the blessings that we enjoy, which include the giving of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that we can have the Spirit of God? It is because the Son of God died for us to draw us to Himself, to make us His children. And then He ascended so that He would send His Spirit to live in His people. Again, the point is, Jesus died to make it so. So we should marvel and we should celebrate and remember this morning. I love how pastor and author John Piper in his book entitled Providence writes about this. He writes, quote, On the basis of Jesus' blood sacrifice, For the sins of his people. God set in motion, I love this, all the forces that would call a people out of darkness. Bring them to faith. Overcome their rebellion. Cause them to walk in his ways. Keep them from the evil one. Bring them finally to glory. And make the universe a new and glorious habitation for his children. In other words, everything God does to fulfill His new covenant promises was secured by the death of Jesus. That's what we celebrate this morning. That's what we treasure and we remember this morning. So, I'm going to pray in just a moment and then music will play. And as it plays, take this time to pray Take this time to confess any sins to God that you know that you need to confess. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not yet repented of your sins and called out to God for Him to love you and save you and forgive you based upon what Jesus has done, you should do that. Do that now. Do that today. Ask God to redeem you and to make you His child. Jesus said that everyone who comes to Him, He would receive. That He would turn none away. That He is so faithful and gracious. That He is merciful and kind. So you come to Jesus today. Use this time to pray, to celebrate, to remember, to treasure. And when you're ready, come to one of these tables and get the cup. Get the the bread and the cup together. Then you can go back to your seat and we will partake together in just a moment. And if you need someone to talk to or to pray with, some of our elders, our pastors will be available and, and we would be honored to do that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful to celebrate, to remember your work. 
the grace that you have shown us in Christ. And today we remember that all of the blessings, all of the joys that we have, we have them because of Christ. We have them because of Him and His goodness and His grace and how we praise you for sending your Son to be the Savior that we need. And how we rejoice to know that that we receive as well the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to assure our hearts, to grow us, that the Spirit would produce His fruit in us. God, we delight in these things. And today, we want to be faithful to what You've called us to do, to treasure, to remember, to celebrate, to express our thanksgiving. So we do that. We love you and we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.